0: Hello and welcome to the ALC Pan-African Radio's Discussion Programme. The Discussion Programme brings together experts to reflect on a variety of current security issues facing Africa at local, national, and international levels.
1: Earlier this month, Kenya scored a continental, if not in fact a global first, when the court um, annulled a presidential election. Now, this resulted in a number of questions being asked. Can we consider this to be an isolated incident, or is it a warning, or is it a prelude to other things to occur in, in, the, in, in the continent? So um, I have with me here um, a very formidable panel. Uh, I would just say one or two things about them and leave yourself to imagine how very fortunate we had this evening to have them discuss this topic with us. (coughs) At the extreme left, well, not ideological, um, is Dr. Comfortero. Um, Comfort is the program director um, since since January 2011 um, of the crisis group that is based in Nairobi. In a previous life, um, she uh, had worked uh, in many places. In fact, she used to be a colleague here at King's College London before she took a very wise decision to move on to more interesting things in life. (laughs) Um, So Comfort is a great pleasure to have you. Comfort uh, finished, uh, did did a PhD at the London School of Economics, and she's been on the editorial board of several journals. Comfort, thank you very much for coming, and um, we look forward to a very interesting discussion with you. Next to comfort is Arvino. Um Dr. Awino Okech uh, is a lecturer at the Center for Gender Studies at the School of Oriental and African Studies, SOAS, and um, she had a PhD in Critical Gender Studies at the University of Cape Town, and I've, uh, I've met. Uh, and listen to Gladwell uh, on several occasions, and um, that Comfort Arita really to be one of the most electrifying intellects you can ever discuss with. I have, ad- I have other things that I've said about Awino, and I will just talk about that later. So um, we will also be discussing this very important um, subject with <coughs> us, and we look forward to having Awino's um, view on some of these issues. And um, last but most certainly not the least, we have Gladwell Otienum. Gladwell is the Founder and Executive Director of the African Center for Open Governance, (AfriCOG), um, a governance uh, and anti-corruption civil society based in Kenya. Um, the the role that she has had to perform Will have placed her on the firing line of of, of, of many of, of many in Kenya. So it's a great pleasure to have to have uh, to have the three of them here, and we look forward to um, having a very interesting and fruitful discussions with them. So um, I was informed that today the full judgment for the um, but the judges were actually released, so which particularly makes this discussion to be extremely, extremely um, timely. So I've discussed with the, with the panelists, and then um, we have come to the conclusion, even though the decision was taken in the absence, that that will be the first speaker, um, then uh, we know we follow, and then we have comfort. So Gladwell, the body in your
2: courts. (laughs) Yeah, how much time do I have? Um ten minutes. Yeah, because uh, there's so much to tell. And uh, and speaking to an external audience you have to balance between too much detail because there's an immense amount of detail. A lot of it, you know. Sort of numbers <laughs> because we're talking about elections uh, a lot of you know there's a there's a there's a great deal to tell so without further ado i'll say that um africog is a member of the civil society Sauti Yangu coalition which has for over a year uh, been uh, doing work around the elections um and this is not the only civil society coalition working on elections um Uh, I also belong to the Kenyans for Peace with Truth and Justice which has since um, 2008 uh, during the post-election violence which followed the disputed presidential elections of 2007 uh, we formed ourselves into a coalition which uh, sought uh, not just peace but peace with truth and justice our contention was that it's not possible to have the peace without the truth and justice and this has been an ongoing uh, you know uh, area of contention between the more conservative parts of society and the more progressive parts of society in Kenya the conservatives want peace they want calm they want quiet they don't want questioning they don't want dissent and the and the more progressive forces say that unless we deal with the uh, underlying forces which have triggered successive crises around our elections we're going to keep on repeating um, these crises <coughs> and probably in a increasing downward spiral. Um, so uh, the Kura Yangu, Saudi Yangu, that means in Swahili, my vote, my voice. We came together because unlike other groups, we felt that the problem wasn't so much the technical aspects <coughs> of elections. Uh, we spent huge amounts of money over the years, all sorts of elaborate technology, <coughs> all sorts of elaborate procedures which continually collapse. Uh, they collapsed in 2007, it collapsed in 2013 and again 2017, as we have seen from the Supreme Court decision, collapsed again. Um, and so we spent a huge amount of money on the technical aspects and uh, you know the, the international partners, donors, whatever the politically correct term is to describe these people who give money to other countries. <laughs> To uh, you know, run their elections, etc. Uh, they've spent huge amounts of money. They've invested millions and millions of pounds, including the British government, in processes which are deeply flawed. And they've done it again and again and again, despite uh, the repeated failures. I've mentioned the last three elections were uh, were basically uh, flawed. They were basically fraudulent. Uh, and Kura uh, yangu Yangu says, the problem is political, so we set out to try and uh, encourage dialogue and unblock the political blockages uh, around the elections. And um, we reached out to a broad array of stakeholders from the economy, the religious bodies, from the political parties, both sides of the, of the divide and the smaller parties, unions, etc um officials, institutions, the IEBC, the police, etc, to, to sort of highlight what we felt was necessary for credible elections. And uh, in contrast to 2013, when everything was dominated by the peace mantra and a sort of deadening silence around issues of justice, and credibility, etc. cetera. Uh, this time around, I think the message of the necessity for credible elections as a precondition for uh, peace and stability, uh, I think that uh, gained a lot of ground and, uh, and influence. And I think not last due to the work of the Kurayangu coalition. So we've been doing um, analyses of the pre- preparedness for the elections uh, in the pre-election period. We monitored the elections, we deployed monitors, and gathered information and gathered uh, evidence. And based on the uh, evidence gathered, we published our analyses uh, of, uh, of a state of preparedness, which was basically, you're not prepared, uh, in very, very many critical areas. And on election day, our monitors and um, and our observations uh, basically uh, affirmed our pre-election concerns which we publicized widely um, and following the the elections we then looked at uh, post-election dispute resolution because we had also been involved in the in the first uh, challenge against the presidential pe- uh, uh, election in 2013 civil society amounted uh, a presidential election petition uh, to the Supreme Court, Uh, and so uh, this was part of the work post-election. Now this, uh, you've said, is an unprecedented uh, decision uh, of the Supreme Court in Africa, uh, which (coughs) very much departs from the former uh, Supreme Court, the first uh, uh, Supreme Court set up under the the new Constitution of Kenya, an extremely progressive constitution passed in 2010. Um, And this decision basically annulled the presidential elections, said that they were so fraught with irregularities and illegalities that they could not uh, be allowed to stand. So now we're in an unprecedented and uncharted situation where we're going into fresh elections, uh, something we've Never done before. Uh, now, um, our findings of various uh, massive failings, uh, which, if when the Supreme Court finally publishes its decision, um, you'll find basically there were there were such massive irregularities that uh, justified justified questions have been raised as to whether an election actually took place. Um, so. Um, the, the findings of the Supreme Court, the fi- which affirmed of the findings of civil society and the complaints of the opposition, uh, saw, saw such massive failures of the whole process, despite the elaborate uh, procedures which have been put in place, uh, that that really uh, we're now in a situation, I mean, I can go perhaps into the details of, of really what went wrong along, along the, the whole line, but for now, just to summarize as an overview, say that um, the, the failures were so massive, and indeed, uh, there seems to have been basically a grand heist of the presidential elections. And this means that the, we are now facing a situation where we're going to the next elections with a completely compromised electoral commission. Uh, the opposition has said that it will not go into the next elections with, unless there have been major changes at the IEBC, and this includes particularly changes amongst the leading, um, the leading staff of the secretariat who've been at the electoral commission for, for uh, successive um, electoral cycles, um, and also changes in the, amongst the commissioners. Uh, but those being more difficult to achieve under the constitution, definitely uh, the opposition is is asking for changes in the the composition of the secretariat, particularly the CEO Ezra Chiloba must go, and um, and other leading staff of the of the uh, electoral commission. Now there's there's a bit of a there's a, a, a deep impasse uh, between. The um, the incumbent, um, the president is incumbent, but with reduced powers, somewhat reduced powers under the constitution. He's more in a caretaker position, and and uh, doesn't have the full powers of the presidency. Though he continues to have very uh, you know broad powers. Uh, so there's there's intense contestation, an intense competition, uh, an intense uh, rivalry and conflict <coughs> between. The opposing sides, um, as to what conditions should pertain in the fresh elections, the the gov- I don't know what to call them. Are they governing? Are they Jubilee is the is the party of the president of of Kenya, the acting president, uh, Jubilee, and we refer to them in Kenya basically as Jubilee. So when I say that, I'm referring to the government, the governing party, um, and the opposition, NASA the I, national, I super alliance. national super alliance they keep changing their <laughs> but the opposition is nasa and the government government is all uh, the um, ruling parties jubilee uh, there's a huge chasm in terms of uh, what needs to happen uh Jubilee, strangely enough, is perfectly happy going into the elections with an unreformed and unreconstituted uh, electoral commission, one wonders why. Uh, Jubilee is happy to use the same technology that failed or was not used uh, or was uh, hacked uh, in, in these last um, elections. So basically, um, without, without uh, far-reaching changes and, and far-reaching assurances, uh, by, the, by the Electoral Commission, uh, Jubilee seems to be very happy to go into elections uh, without these changes, trusting probably that the result would be the same and that, uh, you know, going into an election with those compromised, compromised personnel, compromised uh, commission, compromised procedures uh, and also partisan security forces which have been very ready to deploy brutality against the in opposition <coughs> strongholds um, this this would mean that if we go for elections with, without reforms, we're going to have a repetition of what happened on the eighth to the eleventh of August uh, this this year. Um, I should also add that um, okay, the NASA, the opposition wants far-reaching change. Um, And basically Jubilee and the Electoral Commission seem united in their resistance to that change. Uh, There have been a few interesting developments um, which also underline then the level of criminality which went on uh, during, during these elections. The chairman of the of the Commission has written memos to the to the CEO of the Commission which have leaked and these, uh, these uh, memos have sort of um, told Kenyans that actually what the opposition has been saying, what civil society has been saying all along is justified. Uh, he wrote uh, an internal memo, uh, um, one on the 5th of September and another one two days ago on the 18th of September, in which he raised uh, issues with the CEO and asked for explanations um, on, on what had gone wrong, it it transpired during the Supreme Court case. The Supreme Court ordered a scrutiny of the vo- of the vote and of the of the um, electoral materials, the ballots, and of the ICT system. Uh, the ICT system was to be used to transmit the votes and also as a sort of control <coughs> mechanism uh, on on the votes. And in his memo, he asks the the. CEO several pointed questions, um, such as why ballots didn't all have the uniform security features, why his username, he, he, had, uh, he, he had a username created for him by ICT personnel in the electoral commission, which then proceeded to enter into the uh, IEBC server and alter results about uh, 10,000 times without his knowledge. And, and, these, uh, and these results should not have been able to have been altered, so there was massive manipulation of the, of the uh, ICT system. Um, there were about 595 polling stations we did, which did not send results, over 10,366 out of the 40,883 polling stations which did not send results in the way that they were supposed to, uh, so uh, uh, huge amounts of figures which impact on over five million uh, of the votes, if not more. Uh, there were other there were other questions. It was impossible to say where the electronic equipment, the vote, uh, the Kenya Integrated Electoral Management System kits which were used for voter identification and for voting, uh, I, I mean for voter identification, uh, it was impossible to say where they were in the country because the GPS was switched off. So nobody knows where they were. Um, many of them were, um, were uh, in areas where there was no coverage, so no results were transmitted. So a whole range of, of really uh, uh, shocking, uh, Failings which point to criminal intent from the very beginning of the process in terms of subver- subverting the vote. Um, it's you know it's quite a detailed uh, process. I should have explained how uh, you know how the process is supposed to go, but uh, I think I'll I'll do that later on. All I will say is that um, right now we have a stalemate in Kenya. We've got violent demonstrations by. Um, by supporters of the ruling party, which have not been put down with the brutality that uh, that, uh, protests by opposition supporters were were put down with. Um, And these have been encouraged by the leaders of the the government, uh, the president and the deputy president. There have been incidents of uh, ethnic harassment, people being pulled out of their cars and asked to identify themselves according to their political leanings. So with, this, with the political stalemate and the level of uh, ethnic incitement, um, and I would say particularly by, by the ruling party, which is not accustomed to, um, to losing anything, to losing elections, to losing uh, any judgment, etc. Uh, We have a situation where Kenya's teetering on the brink. Uh, The IEBC uh, unwisely, the Electoral Commission unwisely, set a very early date for the the fresh election, October the 17th, without consulting broadly, uh, as they should have done, particularly after the Supreme Court uh, made such a damning finding against them. Rather than opening up, being transparent, reaching out, they've continued the same intransigent course of working closely with Uh, the Jubilee uh, government. They set this early date. Now it seems that they won't be able to keep it, uh, stick to it because um, the the French company which provided the electronic solution and which has come under a lot of criticism um, and also been found to be guilty of corruption in Nigeria uh, (laughs) has said that it cannot Uh, It will not be ready in time. The constitutional deadline was 60 days from the I'm I'm ignoring (laughs) it The constitutional deadline was 60 days from the from the decision of the Supreme Court Which would have taken it up to October 31st, November 1st. Why the IEBC then Unilaterally chose a date which was clearly not ready for uh, uh, is uh, open to to conjecture. So as we go forward um, uh, basically, the country's teetering on the brink. The scenarios are not good. If elections go ahead on October the 17th, uh, we're likely to have a repeat of the past failed election and the resultant instability. Uh, so the question is, uh, are we really ready for elections? Uh, and are we, do we have the time to make the sort of changes that would need to be made in order to have a credible election which is acceptable by all? Sorry, I've glossed over a lot of stuff, but uh, I, maybe I can return to it in
1: that. <coughs> well, <coughs> those who know Gladwell very well know that she cannot be intimidated. And, uh, she ignored all my threatening messages. <laughs> they were increasingly <laughs> large I was round increasingly.
3: up.
1: <laughs> uh, well, thank you very much indeed, uh, Gladwell, for that. And I'm not taking personal the, the Nigerian dimension of corruption. I'm not taking it personal. Mm -hmm. Um, So I now move to Awino. so. uh,
4: Thank you very, very much. And thank you, Gladwell, for that uh, (coughs) comprehensive overview of what's been happening in the country. I really want to take off uh, from her last comment, which is around scenarios and really reflecting on what it means to be at this particular moment of potential conflict in Kenya. And given the fact that uh, the history of, of Kenyan elections, especially since 2007, has created a situation globally and nationally where people are constantly on edge, when uh, questions of accountability or where, when questions of um, uh, process and uh, constitutionalism are called to play. So, and I think that's what that's what played out quite <coughs> powerfully in in the last I- elections with a seeming pressure on the part of international observers to sort of maintain a particular peaceful status quo given the history of the country. If we recognize that we are sitting in a particularly difficult moment as Kenyans and that the history of violence shapes very powerfully how we react as a country, then fundamentally, in addition to looking at the changes that need to happen at an institutional level in terms of IBC and the process of managing elections, the responsibility for us as people who are interested in conflict management or in- interested in understanding how democratic societies are evolving is to take two steps back, which is to say, indeed, there are systemic processes that need to happen within the institution, change commissioners, change the people who are going to midwife the election, ensure that the process is robust. But that process also needs to be held by a deeper conversation about the nature of the state and the society and the compact that's currently being contested. In my view and in my observation of Kenya as a Kenyan and as a voter, is a recognition of the fact that there's a huge trust deficit in the country. Now, a lot of us may have assumed that a robust constitution and putting in place a whole range of reform mechanisms, whether that was the police reform measures, creating in place the independent electoral commission, including changing the one that was previously there in the last election to this one, and and widening spaces for conversations between citizens and these institutions would deal with the trust question, but that has not necessarily happened. The fact that citizens still remain extremely wary of institutions' ability to carry out their their responsibilities to the letter of the law, and based on the constitution mandate, means that we need to be asking ourselves a different question about how to resolve trust. And and it's clear that putting in place institutions that function uh, with laid out procedures is not necessarily the mechanism that is going to do that. And so that's a question that has to be put on the table. How do we resolve the trust deficit that has created a situation where even when institutions are provided, with proper mandate, legal mandate, their ability to carry out their tasks effectively, and in a manner that is considered uh, uh, abiding by the law, fails to happen. So the question of trust is one that we must center. The second point is a recognition that there's something that has shifted in Kenya. And that shift for me is is, uh, evident in the fact that we have seen a growing wave of citizens beyond formal civil society organizations who are much more interested in calling for accountability. So the debate around state accountability, the debate around a clean, fair election is not a debate between formal civil society organizations. It's not a debate between NASA and Jubilee. It's a debate between Kenyans and the regime that they want to see in place. And I think we sort of miss that in the process, in the ways in which the reporting of the uh, election petition was done, in the ways in which reporting and discussions around the demands that are being made around the electoral commission, as well as the next process of the elections. This is not a demand that is being made by an individual seeking to seek power. Yes, that might be the face of the, of the electoral petition, and as, as well as the face of the demands, given that they are a political candidate. But behind that are a whole wave of citizens who are saying, that there's a deeper commitment to building a new Kenya. And the ways in which to resolve this trust deficit that I've talked about requires that conversations around how the IEBC is reformed, how institutions actually leave out the mandate without interference from the executive, requires that we broaden broaden the theaters of of engagement and conversation. And this is something that has been raised very powerfully across different spaces, that when IEBC is consulting, Around the date for the election, or consulting around the shifts that need to occur within the institution, this should not be reduced to a conversation between two political contestants. This is actually a conversation about how election processes are managed in the country. And if indeed, <coughs> as, the, as as was argued by uh, by um, uh, by the sitting president through his lawyers, that the the, the people. Uh, the voice that matters is the voice of the citizens, then we must center citizens' voices in making determinations around the changes that need to happen within the Commission and the processes around election management now and in the future. The third thing which must be put front and center, even as we address the question of reforming the IBC, and this is deeply connected to the notion of trust. Is, there, is the ways in which civil liberties continue to be curtailed by a regime that insists that they have won fairly and squarely. And we saw a lot of this happen through uh, our colleagues seated here just right after the election, the very specific targeting of organizations that were deemed as a threat to the regime of the day, organizations that have consistently very publicly called for credit, credible processes, not only just around elections, but around financial management, around budgetary processes, around parliamentary and legal processes. The big, the larger, the larger framework that we must remember here is that while there have been specific targeting of individuals, very specific individuals and institutions, there's a larger conversation that is happening in the country, which is about the fact that that targeting is repre, is representative of a deeper systemic problem in which regimes that are insecure, regimes that are fragile, begin to slowly curtail the channels through which citizens can engage on particular issues. And I want to emphasize a few to illustrate the point that I'm making. And the ways in which this has occurred very clearly has been through a range of securitization discourses that began building up in earnest in 2013, right after the Westgate Mall attack. And this occurred through the sort of, while there had been attempts through the 2007-8 fallout from that election process and the reform processes of trying to democratize the ways in which the police and the national police function, 2013 opened the door for the executive at that particular point to begin to widen the powers of the national police service, which the reform processes had aimed to reduce and aimed to increase more civilian oversight, largely because of the historical weaknesses of the policing as an institution, but also because of the fact that the police were very central to the forms of violence and abuses and extrajudicial killings, which have not stopped, of course, that happened in 2007-08, and have continued in different shape and form over time. So it is not by accident that you, you, you saw Westgate, you saw the Mpeketoni attacks and a range of other al-Shabaab-related attacks offer an opportunity for the National Police Service to be kitted with what many would call significant military-grade kind of equipment that national police in a lot of countries do not necessarily have. Now, the fact that these kinds of things are happening in a country where there's a very interesting tension between the debates around peace, that we must maintain peace, and the visible face of peace is police in in, uh, heavily armored vehicles, on the one hand. And an increasing but very silent uh, dialogue around violence that you can see both discussively in the the ways in which people are talking about violence. People are not necessarily out on the street with pangas and machetes, as, as may have happened in 2008. But the kinds of discussions and debates that are happening in social media and other spaces are very violent in and of themselves. Some of this may be acted out in different ways. And in different spaces, but there's, so there's therefore this very uncomfortable tension around. Let's keep peace at all costs. Yet we continue to arm the national police, who are sent out to poor, uh, uh, you know, peri-urban sites of of, of the country, to, to to sort of manage uh, communities that are already poor, underserved by the very state, and therefore continue to criminalise, as well as label, often young male black poor men in those communities as criminals, as the source of problems, and not necessarily place responsibility on the regime through its political programs to actually resolve the socioeconomic and political problems that ensure that they are sending people to those places so that they do not become violent? Why, therefore, do people see violence as a route to resolving deeply socioeconomic and political problems? How is it that the state can't begin to to centre its own responsibility, as opposed to reinforcing violence as the tool through which to resolve dissent within the country. The fact that people see elections as highly contested processes, and see the the, the potential of of whoever their candidate is as shifting the socio-economic the circumstances means that we need to be having a different conversation. This is not a conversation about. Main, oh, it's not a conversation about curtailing or maintaining violent people, managing violent people. It's about creating a situation in the country that people feel they're equal players and have access to the goods and resources that any government of the day is managing on their behalf as voters. The final point that I would like to make, since Allow is right here pushing papers in my face, It's connected to a, a broader question around the lowest, lowest common denominator approach. And I think because we are seated in London speaking about this, it's, it's obviously very important for those who might be listening to this from a different context to remember that as Gladwell has pointed out, the complexities of this, the current moment in Kenya, does not mean that what the, ke- what the Kenyan people need or what the Kenyan state needs to do is simply resolve the, the, the very tiny thing that will allow us to push over to the next point until the next crisis occurs. So this is not, in my view, the conversations that we need to be having, having about Kenya right now should not be reduced to one about creating a commission, an electoral and boundaries commission, that can, man- that can get us through as a country through the next presidential uh, rerun, and then we can be left to our own devices. And that the reform of the electoral commission, this particular moment we find ourselves in as a country around the uh, the very robust challenge to electoral management, is about a larger conversation around the state and the society in the country. And that we, as actors, as interested actors, whether we are funders, donors, or partners, who are interested in Kenya's democratization process, we must not reduce this to a conversation about a lo- the lowest common denominator. Is it Chiloba we want out, and once that is done, the, the process moves on. That, that's not how we should be having this conversation with all parties concerned, who are right now are represented as the opposition candidate and the sitting president, but as for Kenyans as a people. Thank you.
5: Wow.
1: Yes, thank you very much. Uh, yes, I did. Send some threatening messages, which, like, um, like that, where you ignored. Um, <coughs> well, I now move on to comfort. Um, the good thing about comfort is that she's strategically located such that it would be difficult to send threatening messages <laughs> to her, <laughs> <laughs> but we'll see how far that goes. So, um, comfort, please, you have the floor. Um,
6: Thank you very much. You don't need to worry about uh, sending me threatening messages. I'm going to keep my um, intervention brief, because I think Gladwell and Irina and have set the stage pretty well for us to have a conversation. And I thank ALC um, for timing its own uh, decision to call this panel on the day that the, the court um, handed out the full analysis. We, I don't know how many people have managed to di- digest it, but there, there were, I left when the um, dissenting judge was still Two and a half hours into his um, his own descent, so <laughs> and, I, <laughs> I, and I don't know, um, finally what 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 his his remarks were. I mean, I want to make a mixture of um, general remarks and maybe point to certain things in relation to to, to Kenya. And I'm and I'm very conscious that there are there are, the real experts are at the panel um, and others in in the audience. Um, you know, since the election came out, the number of calls that, or the number of questions that have been asked, um, apart from wondering whether this was unprecedented, was whether the example of Kenya could be transported elsewhere. And I have to say, I'm I'm generally nervous of of, of trying to take a set of complex, reasonings and, and happenings in one country and assume that you can replicate it in, in another why the why the court took its decision um, there are le- there are clear legal reasons and one only just has to look at the the decisions why it was able um, to happen in Kenya also I think you have to appreciate Kenya's own long struggle for for constitutionality and improving constitutionality and also, the transformation. I mean, I think it. I think it was in. An, it's like in the 1990s where, you know, that big, you know, push for ending um, one ruler, one party rule, and moving to multiple party democracy was really gained. So I think where you start your history to understand how it came today um, is important to understand how the court was able to make that decision. But nonetheless. We are constantly asked as observers, and that's what I am, um, into, uh, into Kenya, um, whether there are other examples similar to this, or whether you can take this example elsewhere. And for me, it's quite important, primarily because um, the stakes are high in Kenya because of what Kenya represents. Um, every statement that we have issued has factored in Kenya's weight in its region and what it does has rippling effects in the region now there is a another more even equally contentious and one that really has the capacity to suck in the region and another vital election that's coming down the road actually it may n- it may never come down the road it looks as though we're going to go into real violence and instability in the drc and so when i think of what kenya has done i ask myself well, what can the, the citizens, civil society, in a country like the DRC, learn and take away from Kenya? Especially a country that doesn't have, I think, the similar kind of resilient institutions and has never been blessed, even despite everything that has been said about Kenya today um, and in the, in the past and will be said later, um, there, are, there are, I think, there are qualities that I would like to take away from what we've seen in the last month about the resilience of people and institutions and ensuring the checks and balances are not just in theory but in practice because that's what happened as well that you had a supreme court that was able to rise above the executive and i mean i don't know in history will we'll prove it and some of you will, will be better placed to, to tell us and that the, the chief justice himself alluded to the harassment and the threats But despite all of that, it was able to rise above and make its judgment, and that that is something that that has been read and appreciated and understood quite fervently right across the the continent. I also think that it helps sort of nuance the debate um, around authoritarian drift. Um, It's become a very compelling narrative, particularly in the Horn of Africa, and when you look at the regions, the other countries and the regions of, of, of the Horn of Africa, um, Ethiopia, Uganda, Rwanda, Burundi, um, I think there is a way in which we can begin to nuance that, that debate. Um, we have spent you know, some time looking and reflecting at what is happening in West Africa, for example. 10 years ago, the narrative for West Africa was very different. Uh, it was very one of you know a conflict, of, um, a region of conflict of anarchy, uh, Liberia, Sierra Leone, Ivory Coast, um, and Nigeria, where we're still grappling with the with the issues there. But I think what is interesting for me and 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 one of my takeaways is that I I think that Kenya's uniquely placed is that it is different in the region. It is a country that has tried and worked very hard in the democratization mode and there is a price to pay when you go down the democratic path and kenya pays that price and there's a high price for it and kenyatta struggles with that because of the one at the one you know you have a choice you can either be a police state in the form of Eritrea or go down the path of democracy and still try to rein in the progressive nature of democratization. And I think Kenya is at an interesting path. And yes, I am concerned about the scenarios that will play out. One, whether the 17th of October will happen. Can we even, if they change the 17th of October, can they even deliver on the 1st of November, given everything that Gladwell has said? So there are a number of looming you know scenarios that that i think will should be bothersome and i think these are worth understanding further gladwell i I think we should we should look at those those scenarios um more um and what it means for the constitution as well because if you're suggesting um because of the trust deficit that you've talked about that there are even question marks about the said about the about this the first of november we do enter a period of constitutional crisis and I think discussing the, the scenarios around that are important. But I want to just say that I think that this, this, this helps nuance that narrative of authoritarian drift. And it also helps nuance that narrative that despite all the money we've thrown at institutions as, as international donors, despite how much money that they've thrown at international institutions, um, that yes, you know, some do remain resilient. And the Supreme Court comes into that category as well. Um, I also think that what happened in Kenya um, is significant because of the, not just because of the Horn of Africa, but because the central Africa where Kenya borders on, the narrative is of third-termism, where the constitutions are usurped, where the constitutions are thrown away, where we go through a fallacy of a referendums, where, where presidents can continue their stay in power. So Congo, Brazzaville, and Rwanda is our good examples. So in, in this area, and, and certainly from 2015, 2016, we've been talking about you know, the fact that incumbents go through the, go through the, the pretense of, of, of elections and still they, they remain in power, or others just tear up the Constitution. To see a country preserve the sanctity of the Constitution and to hear the, the highest body of a country continue to validate that Constitution that was so hard fought for. I think is something worth taking away from the from the Kenya story, and I think it it resonates um, in countries where civil society is looking for a way um, to work out its own very complex um, um, narrative with its own um, with its own state and its own um, um, government as well. I also say this in a period where, for the last five years, one of the things that we've seen consistently among a number of countries is a copycat of various bills that, in the end, shut down the political space of a country, um, um, curtail civil society, undermine the rule of law. So you've seen you know, a period of, of anti-civil um, society legislations. And Kenya had its own attempt to do that. Copycats from, from Ethiopia as well. And you've seen the rise of anti-terror bills. And there's been an attempt to copy that. Know, right through to Cameroon as well and into the Sahel. so this again I, I, I raise this again that despite um, I think our concerns about stability and, uh, and our concerns about what the ne- what the next chapter looks like in Kenya there are some important takeaways that I think are important for us to capture um, for practitioners for those of us who go around um, trying to observe think and reflect and trying to ensure good practices in, in, in other places as well and I say it also because both you and Glad, Gladwell have raised it, Arena. Um, I, I, I think there is, there is some <coughs> pause for us in terms of civil society and where we go, go, go about. I mean, there are different faces of civil society. Um, I would say that if there's anything we've learned from this is the resilience of another institution that has come under extreme pressure before this government came into power, you go back to the, to the time of the ICC, and, and you look at the action of the government, the, the, um, the, the unity government, and then this government as well, at every turn, to try and control curb the ability of civil society to do its work. Well, the, the other big takeaway is that, you came th- that you've come through this, yet the story is not complete, but everybody's now watching. And the other people who are watching and who have taken lessons, we don't know how far they've observed those lessons, are the observers. Yes, the stability factor was crucial in their calculations, and I think that was the main factor. And they're guided by previous history. And yes, there is the, 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 the remark that, um, that the observers and... Well, actually, I, I'm not sure just how, how well skilled observers are to understand the complexities um, especially in a polarized um, situation and environment that they are the fact that the, the, the commit that the elections commission denied the Supreme Court access to, to vital information logs and the servers um, is, is already a problem the fact that the observers themselves are denied this we, we need to rectify that and then make sure that observers have access to, to, to everything and that they're not, they don't limit their interventions to stability or oh, we do get into the result that I think one of the members of the KPTJ, I think in John Joe Mew said that other, you, re, you reduce us to, you, you, you end up just um, recognizing that we queued well um, instead of recognizing the politics behind, um, behind um, observation. In a sense, the observers are, are, are sort of pre-mediators and mediators. Um, should we get them to do more than, than that? Yes. Um, how do they scrutinize not just what's happening at the polling station, but the, tran- the transmission of the results to the national center? Yes, there should be uh, uh, more, more thinking about that. Then there's the whole issue about the, the tone, the expression, of the observers, um, the preliminary statements. I think we should look carefully at those preliminary statements. Yes, there's an impression that, that was created that that suggested that Kenyatta won won the vote, but they were also very careful in what in what in what they said. So I don't necessarily want to give a defence for 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 the observers, but I think what comes out of this are important lessons for how we do observer observer missions in in the future. Now. Two of the most important observers in the, in outside of observers um, in this process, the Carter Centre and the, and the EU, are long-time practitioners, and they have a host of methodology. And they learnt lessons from 2007. Ironically, they were criticised in 2007, one of the criticisms, for speaking out um, too late. And we wanted to hear them very early because there was a lot of concern about, about what was going on. And, and here we are today. Um, I think one of the conclusions from the, from the European that union is that they will review that 48 hours and and maybe hold fire Um, but yes certainly there were concerns but some of them did take unusual steps um, in the period after the the elections and then they criticized the lack of transparency um, in the process and the speed in which um, the results were being tallied and and the judgment um, is a testimony to that but but yes I think there are a number of lessons uh, but there are a number of lessons that came out despite um what we say about nigeria there were a number of lessons that came out of the nigeria in 2003 and in 2007 that led to a review of the election and led to um, jagger becoming the um the, the commissioner there and for improving things in nigeria so lessons i learned from nigeria as well um i'll stop now because um, um i think an, i'm more interested to to hear um, about the scenarios that, that Gladwell thinks about because we are we need, we have an opportunity to prevent and not react to um, incidents and if there are clear things that we need to be thinking about I think it will be remiss on us not to start thinking about how to prevent some of those scenarios that I think um, Gladwell was alluding to, but I'll, I'll stop there. Thank you. Yes.
0: You're listening to the discussion program on the ALC Pan-African Radio. Stay tuned.
1: Um, Thank you very much indeed, um, Comfort. Now we've listened to three amazing presentations. Um, So I'll now throw the whole discussion to the floor. Um, Please be very precise about what you want to say. Don't start by pressing the presenters. We all know they, they delivered fantastic presentations. So just give us your name, your affiliation, if you have any, as I guess you will, and then ask a question, very brief and precise. Um, we take four at a go, and then we get the responses, and then we can go for another round if we have the time.
7: Thank you. Tardesa um, uh, from the LC. Uh. At the risk of uh, exaggeration, I might say that two things recur when it comes to the whole history of uh, modern politics in, in Kenya. Uh, one is ethnicity, another is criminality, Or ethnicity is a collision of it. Uh, then uh, if you look at the development, was really Kenyan? as portrayed by the international media and the like. If you measure democracy in terms of process institutions, at face the aspiration part of it I can understand. But the transition to democracy was either negotiated clumsily or violent. So I mean so given that history I think we should dig deeper. And partly related to that is the trust deficit and uh, it's too deep, too huge. It cannot be addressed with the nation So sometimes I say, I joke that probably there must be some kind of international panel Running elections in Kenya and in a technical nature, or with always the involvement of the political elite in some kind of compact. I'm not suggesting a trustee, UN trust ship, but trust ship for elections. So wh- what do you think then, if that is the case, how do you, how do you <coughs> analyze it? And how do you locate it separately given the history? Which has never been you know highlighted
1: in many analysis, right? thank you. Um let's identify the four first. Anthony? And who else again for the first round? Okay.
8: Hi, thanks uh and thanks Comfray. Um Just um, in terms of thinking of the legacy of the Supreme Court ruling, I think what its biggest significance is actually is breaking that sort of peace versus justice tension. And this idea, since we're speaking in the UK, coming from international organizations, from the EOMs, that ultimately um, Kenyans should be grateful in a relative sense and in a historical sense because comparative to the region, comparative to history, there have been incremental gains. I think the biggest thing the ruling really gave Kenyans was the idea that that is not a good enough standard for Kenyans. And I, I really think that's important. Comfort, I mean, of course, we all appreciate the work that Crisis Group did. I think you did some work really raising sort of hidden pockets of conflict in Beringo, like Kipia, giving good analysis going into the election, etc. But I have to say, I was extremely disappointed with what you released immediately following um, the declaration and what came out, what did come out as a defense of the EOMs. We of course understand the importance of having observation and external observation, um, but observation that doesn't address that kind of underlying attitude, uh, that kind of simplified checklist um and that says all these things that civil society had been trying to raise are actually not really that important um in the bigger scheme of things um and that is coming from direct conversations with people regardless of what was in the preliminary statements um so i think what would be helpful is actually indicating what to look for going forward and coming from a group like crisis group actually giving correct analysis of what causes political violence in Kenya. In this case, it's political mobilization around ethnicity, using ethnicity. It is the lack of integrity that we've had within the elections and the sense of half of the population that there's nowhere left to go when that happens. Um, It is the sense of capture of institutions like the IBC and the state security agencies. rather than this sort of existential angst um, that sort of overlay you know, the idea that Kenyans might just go into, I don't know, some kind of primordial going at one another. And I think your group in particular is, is really important to give that kind of analysis. Um, so I just wanted to say, much as I respect the work, I think Crisis Group in particular should really help with the analysis that underpins the EOM's work and with what they should be looking for going forward. In terms of averting the scenario, the worst case scenario that Gladwell talked about, it is a very simple, clear checklist that the Supreme Court ruling gave us, that the two court ordered reports gave us, that civil society has given us about where things failed once people had
1: cast their ballot. Um, Thank you, Matheny. Um,
9: Another question for this round? Uh, thank you. Wale is my ALC. I wanted to pick up on the comment that Comfortero uh, mentioned. Uh, I think your very last sentence, actually, when you are talking about what does this mean for the whole business of ele- election observer missions in Africa, the way election observer missions are composed, the methodology for observing elections, the mandate of observer missions, what exactly did they do? Uh, to what extent has uh, Kenya exposed the inadequacies in the old current systems of uh, of, of observing elections? And and going forward, um, I think if I remember quite, I mean this is my second point. Uh, is uh, the first one is a question, obviously. But the second point is uh, to join in the speculation that uh, I will not mention in terms of scenarios building. If I cast my mind back to the Nigerian election in 2007, I think it was also very close. Uh, at the Supreme Court, I think it was the verdict was four, four against three. It was extremely very close that Nigeria could have also annulled. But the the import of this is: uh, Are we going to see an era of judicial activism, in, in, you know, across the continent in relation to? Election-related uh, uh, cases going forward. Thank you. Um,
1: can I take one more, or we just? Okay. While we are thinking, I think what you have touched on some very interesting points, really, um, whether there will be judicial activity, activism, I will leave it to you, um, for the panelists. Um, I don't know the extent to which Nigeria is always one <laughs> one cut short in, the, in most things. So. So, and again, I think it's quite interesting that you pointed it out that, uh, about the activities of, um, of election monitors. Uh, my own experience is that elections in Africa are not actually rigged on the voting dates. Um, the whole job leading to the rigging of election will have been completed days before the observers come in. So, it's also a so different thing. <coughs> and, but I'm quite interested in having the views of the of the um, of the panelists. Um, I'll start again with um, um, Gladwell.
2: Thank you. Uh, I'll answer or comment in no particular order, not in the same order the questions were asked. In terms of are we entering an era of judicial activism in Africa, we're not even certain that if the, the uh, fresh elections are held and, uh, and, again, there were to be a challenge to the Supreme Court, Given the sort of intense pressure uh, that's been, um, you know, put on the Supreme Court judges, the majority, um, you know, including their security being withdrawn or their or their or the police not responding to their request for personal security, including all sorts of defamatory stories. In uh, in social media and in the media, uh, including stories of collusion between uh, the judges who gave the majority decision and uh, and you know various figures in civil society and in the opposition, publication of call logs, um, you know of judges, uh, you know pri- uh, call logs which were obviously obtained from the uh, biggest uh, service provider in the country. If they were real. Um, because we have a huge element of, uh, of fake news in this election and also the involvement of companies like uh, Cambridge Analytica and uh, the British PR firm BTP Advisors which engages in basically black ops. Uh, but given the sort of pressure these judges have come under, w- we're not sure that they would be able to repeat uh, because the failures would be very much the same. The failures were the same in 2007, uh, more so in 2013 with the introduction of electronic uh, safety mechanisms. The same failures. If the election is rigged again, it, you know, inevitably, uh, you know, if conditions don't change, the elections would be rigged again. I'm not at all sure that the judges would have that resilience that comfort talks about to to do a repeat of, of their decision that's uh, really open to speculation but they've been subjected to massive pressure including massive demonstrations obviously government organized uh, you know by by crowds claiming that their that their you know Kenyatta's victory was was stolen uh, but indeed it is a, a i mean the supreme court basically rehabilitated itself with this decision. The 2013 Supreme Court judgment has been roundly criticized and justly so for failing on so many fronts, constitutionally, legally, jurisprudentially, it just, uh, and uh, you know, and even in plain straightforward interpretation of plain language in the Constitution for very instrumental reasons. So I think the Supreme Court must be really, um, uh, congratulated uh, for, for its courage in standing up uh, for not just the sort of uh, the, the, this argument that it doesn't matter what goes wrong in an election as long as it doesn't impact on the numbers. That's what the minority was basically arguing and that's what the Supreme Court argued in 2013. They've done a great deal to rehabilitate themselves, the institution, and faith in institutions. Uh, if, they, if they had repeated what happened in 2013, we would be in a very different situation now. We wouldn't have a Supreme Court. We wouldn't have elections. Uh, you know, People would not be interested in that. So hopefully, they would, would have the, the courage to, to continue. On election observers, I don't want to accord them too much importance. I think uh, their presence is necessary, but I don't want to spend too much time discussing them. Uh, we you know the things have been said you know uh, about them and i agree that uh, basically they ended up uh, um, endorsing prematurely a process which was absolutely catastrophically flawed as i said there are reasonable grounds to believe that no election was conducted so um and as Abiodun says, these things don't happen on on election day. Uh, you know, on election day, uh, John Kerry will come in and say everyone queued in a very orderly manner. That's that's basically almost racist, I think. Uh, and we have greater aspirations for ourselves. And what we've noticed in our relationships with the with the representatives of the so-called international community, which <coughs> is the Western countries and observers, is there's been a shift in in let's perhaps influence, uh, whereas before the locus of, of power and influence was within the Western countries. Now, um, it's, it's basically shifted, and I think that has to do with global <laughs> shifts. Uh, the, the, the Western countries simply cannot be relied on uh, in terms of uh, being partners in, in, in democratic processes and supporting the aspirations of people for accountability, democracy. Uh, so when, when they call us to meetings, we say, no, you come to us or we simply you know, aren't that interested because there's not that much that they can do for us, so which is why I would not want to. I think definitely lessons need to be learned in terms of methodology. Their presence is necessary. Uh, as long as that, that presence has learned the lessons and learned not to speak too prematurely or too flippantly uh, and not to take uh, you know, our aspirations seriously. But I'd rather not really uh, spend all that time uh, talking about them because they really aren't that influential anymore in terms of the impact that they can have on uh, government which is misbehaving uh, or or you know in terms of trying to secure democracy accountability they're very clearly like comfort says come down on the side of stability and security at the expense of the aspirations of, of of kenyans i'll very quickly talk about Uh, the two sort of main strands of Kenyan politics ethnicity and criminality I think you know what we really do have a state which we can increasingly describe as criminalized many of the people in government including leading figures in our government are uh, have been involved in major crimes Um, you know we have governors who are drug dealers we have you know a huge involvement of of, uh, of criminals in in political power and uh, and a sort of uh, uh, what do you call melding? Is that in? Yeah. yeah, melding of the criminal elites and the political uh, and the political elites and um, this this is I think increasingly a feature of of our of our government and then a huge level of of. Uh, of criminality in terms of how wealth is gained, how political power is gained, uh, it's not for nothing that you know billions and billions and billions of shillings have been stolen by this government in the run-up to the elections because that's how you buy power uh, in order to to keep on being able to you know get great wealth and uh, influence. Uh, through criminality. So that has had a trickle-down effect through, throughout the whole country and on our political systems and on our social and public uh, uh, morality. And these elections have been no different in, in that, in the, you know, the, the impact of bribery, of uh, you know, uh, the government misusing state resources in order to campaign and gain political power. Uh, and that's not likely to change soon. I think that would be a feature of any government which follows, but I think there are nuances and differences between the opposition and the, and the um, Kenyatta's uh, party because the opposition has to be more distributive in its, in its uh, political programs. And if you read their manifesto, you can see that they have a very much more inclusive and distributive uh, approach. Uh, because that's their numbers are based on a much more dispersed, uh, ethnically dispersed and diverse um, population. Uh, but still, the criminality and the corruption will continue to be a feature of our politics for some time to come.
4: Sorry. You want to come from
1: the president of Kenya? <laughs> I'm
4: sorry.
1: <laughs> <Oops>. <laughs> that's okay. Um, uh, thanks a lot, um, Gladwell. Now, Awido. can we have your views on the issue of judicial activism, um, the role of international election observers, and the dichotomy between ethnicity and criminality in Kenyan politics?
4: Okay, I'll speak to the first and the last. Uh, so Wale, if, if we have subscribed to the idea of constitutionalism as the ways in which you know, our states will be constructed. Then the courts must be full, put to their full use. They must be tested. So I don't think we can run away from the likelihood where there are robust, you know, court systems and robust constitutional mechanisms for a certain level of litigiousness, uh, whether by citizens or, or, or you know, through other mechanisms. In this particular context, we're talking about elections. But I think the ways in which we talk about judicial activism sometimes. Is is often intended to poo poo at, at uh, attempts to call for accountability. So where judges, for instance, you know, extend, uh, you know, are much more comprehensive in the way in which they look at the issues before them, you know, so that it's not just about the legal claims in a case, but they're much more comprehensive. In the ways in which they assess the merits and, and merits and and demerits of the case, then we, we label that as judicial activism. I know that that was a big thing that was raised in the 2013 you know election petition, where the court was urged by one of the, the lawyers that don't this is not the time to be judicial activists. You know, just you know consider the larger questions in the country at this particular moment. You know, and, and be measured in your response. And I think that the, the fear of, of the, the broader repercussions, the desire to be measured, because apparently, as, as a continent, we need to be held hostage by our potential as a people to constantly erupt into violence, means that we actually do not pull our, put our institutions and push them to their full measure. We actually do, are not able to see what these institutions can do. And I think this is the beauty of this particular ruling, is that there's evidence right before us that Kenya has not blown up. You know, People have not run amok and are not burning each other at the stake. And that actually, there are very civil conversations that are happening across institutions and across citizens about what the country needs and what the country requires. On the question of, of, of ethnicity and criminality, I, as, as a Kenyan, I, I be, and, and as a Kenyan, and as a scholar, I think I've seen a significant shift in the ways in which ethnicity is mobilized in political discourses, and I believe that the rest of the world has not caught up to that shift. And that shift is one that has has moved away from your you know, 1990s analysis of your ethnic kingpins, and and I think we are still stuck there, assuming that Odinga has a mass of Luos who run after him, and uh, Musioka has a mass of Kambas who immobilizes, you know. I do not believe that is what is happening in the country at this particular moment, especially in the ways, in terms of how ethnicity is mobilized politically. I say this because what, what, in my view, we are witnessing right now is a certain siege mentality in a section of the country that is that has been fueled by particular ideas about annihilation threat risk and, and and the potential of an entire community to be wiped away and these things are happening discursively and i think this is where we really need to pay attention to how discourses are circulated they circulate through assertions about the fact that one person cannot win an ele- you know cannot lose an election uh, and therefore there, there are constant attempts to push for broader conversations around democratization is about the individual and is not about the systems in the country. This, this cycle when within particular communities or within particular public spaces, radio stations, there are, there's a constant reinforcement of the idea that if X comes into power, then Y is going to be wiped out and will die and will no longer uh, 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 you know, exist in this country. So this siege mentality has sort of heightened a conversation on ethno-nationalism in a way that I've never seen before, you know, and it has shifted quite radically. So it's no longer about little little communities fighting with each other because because the terms in which Kenya was created was false, but it's there's a, a deeper fear around annihilation, risk, and an existential crisis that is framing how uh, ethno- ethno-nationalism is being built in the country, and that is what we need to disrupt. I, I, I do not believe that the average Kenyan walks around uh, as, as a voter, as, as, a, as, you know, as a person who comes from a Dinka's community, let me say that. I do not walk around waiting for Dinka to tell me how to vote. You know? And the majority of, of, of Kenyans who do not think that way. And I think internationally, the ways in which analysis on Kenya continues to happen still balkanizes us into groups of people who think from our ethnic cocoons, which is not accurate. I think Kenyans have moved on significantly from that. And the mobilization of ethnicity is, is 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 being done in a quite sophisticated way, and it's 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 hinged on fear. The fear factor has been mobilized in a very sectional way, and and uh, and and it's it's a twisted narrative from the 2007 uh, uh, eight violence. Can I very quickly just? Okay. I, th-
2: I think. Uh, you may be right in terms of fears of annihilation, etc., but also there's been very, very active uh, uh, mobilization and whipping up of, of feelings of superiority mm-hmm. in certain groups. So it's not just the fear of, of uh, you know uh, you know of, of uh, violence, suffering, negative consequences. There's also a narrative that's been pushed of of certain people, uh, you know. Um, who see themselves as chosen and, and don't, don't you know see themselves as predestined to rule the, the country. So there's that, that nuance, you know, that aspect of it.
1: Thanks a lot for that introduction. Uh, I'm sure we'll be coming back to this. Um, Comfort, <coughs> you had a number of specific questions going to your direction. So,
6: um, Yeah, um, I mean, directly to 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 Mithenia, I don't disagree with with your observations. Um, I mean, we can. I'm conscious of the fact that we're speaking live, but we can discuss um, our own internal deliberations. And there were even leading up to that, and after that, and even leading up to the to making the first of September statement as well. So, but my colleagues wouldn't disagree with you because they're also um, um, Kenyans, so they they recognise that and. I'm glad you acknowledged what we did before because that, those underlying traits were very much um, the build-up to our work that acknowledged acknowledged and said that you know people need to sit up and understand what are the undercurrents behind these elections. Um, and there was the, the the statement that we made in the elections as well. So I mean, I I, I don't dispute um, what you said, and I think when you look at what we said on the 1st of September, that um, statement was not just about the observers to be in needing to be introspective and reflective, but we mentioned ourselves in that statement. So we, we publicly um, reprimanded ourselves. Um, and and even making that decision was, was fraught as well. Um, there There is not just one person who writes for Crisis Group, the institution owns it. and um, Though there were differences um, still it was an institutional statement and I, I think um, um, I'd like to think that our credibility is still um, there because we, we publicly acknowledge that even we um, um, should call ourselves into question in some of the things that we that carried that statement having said that that the specific statement that you that you mentioned does talk about those undercurrents um, while pointing to the future, it said that Kenya really needs to deal quite, scared, quite clearly with the issues that Gladwell and, and all of you have raised around ethnic mobilization and the violence that accompanies um, elections. Um, and a lot of the rigging that we don't see um, on the day, but happens um, in the lead up to the elections as well. So, But I'll, I will say that I completely also agree on the, the whole issue on the peace Peace versus justice. Um, some of the the reporting that came out soon after the judgment handed down was very alarmist, assuming that the country was going to go into to uh, severe crisis. When well, on, on the contrary, you know, there have been some interesting conversations that have been that have been had, um, and I I I also think that from an analyst perspective, there's been a lot to learn from. From that, uh, from that conversation. And I go back to what I said. It, it, it's a mark of the resilience of a country that that you don't fall into that trap that oh, the country burns just because of this decision, but there are some useful conversations, some difficult conversations. There has been a raising of the temperature. There has been hate speech as well. Um, but, there, but there are some important conversations and how those hold out, um, I think we, we have to wait and see. But I, I take your criticism. Well.
1: Yes. Uh, thank you very much. Before I ask um, for another round of questions, let me just ask this question. I wish really that uh, this question is not coming out of my mouth, but it's. Uh, I think it, it will have to come from someone's mouth. If an election is conducted again in Kenya, anytime it, I mean that, that election comes up, chances are quite high that the Jubilee Party. Would win, not because it is popular, but because it has the so-called advantage of incumbency, which in Africa is an infamous thing for rigging. Uh, if that is the case, isn't it then the case that the entire millions of pounds or dollars that uh, have been spent on it ends up being wasted? How realistic is it that the structures will be put in place to foster this before the next election? Uh, I'll leave that to the panelists to to answer. But before that, um, let's go for another round of questions. Do we have any questions? Questions? One, rose, two, three, and four. And that will be the end of it.
8: You already spoke about the Kenyatta not being used to losing now, um, and if
2: he does win another election, what might, might we see,
9: how might he act in his second and last term? Yes,
1: that's one. Rose? Uh, i
3: Rose uh, My question is this, as a Kenyan, I've been wondering which is the way to go, because as we've said, structures have not been put in place, whether we vote on 17th or whether we vote in December or November. Would it be better to have another government of national unity so that structures are put in place? Or Because either way, whether we vote, whether the Jubilee government wins or the Nasa government wins, the other half of the population will actually not feel that their wish went through. So I think we also need to look at what best should we do, because the current IEBC, which has refused to open the servers, may actually not be able to do anything much because they already have a predetermined. Maybe we, most of us believe that it is already predetermined. So what is the best way forward? Should we look at how best our leaders can now sit? and come up with better institutions. I know we have tried, we have improved, but there is still room for much better
5: institutions. Thank you very much. Um, I am quite new to this. I have you know, not been really exposed to the whole Kenya presidential election before now. Um, but sort of just listening to questions that have been asked, what's been said, I was sort of expecting on your questions. Uh, if uh, the ruling party does win despite changes, despite perhaps a, a actually legitimate election. Do you think that everyone, you know, the, the situation would settle? Do you think it was a point now where it's, you know, there have been so many elections that haven't worked that um, that the other side would still feel like, as much as it was legitimate and, you know, observers and everyone could agree on that, that there's sort of the Situations kind of got to a, an explosion point where, where it's, it would, what, like, where do you think? What do you think the reaction would be to that? And kind of, do you think this is at a point where it wouldn't settle? Okay.
1: I think. I, I thought you raised your hand. Did you? Oh, sorry.
8: Hi, um, my name is Lynette, and I'm from the ALC. And my question was, what does the situation in Kenya, I know that uh, Comfort discussed a little bit about how it reflects the region and how it has carried leadership within that region, but what does this current situation affect in the region, especially for the DRC, um, given the circumstance, and it was stated that that maybe there won't even be elections. You know, can you please um, explain that further?
1: Thank you. OK, thank you very much. Um,
2: so oh, a Brief. I have to be brief. OK. <laughs> OK. okay. Um, uh, well, uh, Uhuru Kineta, uh, not used to losing, born with a silver spoon in his mouth, never had a problem that mommy's money and daddy's money couldn't solve. <laughs> uh, sorry, I'm being very. Um, very uh, a bit flippant here, but basically, uh, this sense of entitlement is clear in the way that he's responded to the the uh, Supreme Court judgment. Jubilee has already telegraphed their intentions. Uh, they have all along been uncomfortable with constitutional reform. They've been uncomfortable with the with the you know narrowing of the powers of the executive. Uh, they've tried all sorts of ways to bring in uh, amendments to laws, which increase the power of the of the executive, which curtail uh, democratic freedoms, etc. And um, the secretary general of the Jubilee Party was heard to be very, very clear. Um, I think it's the secretary general. He's a leading figure in the Jubilee Party anyway. He he was. Um, you know, basically his message was, next time around if we win, no more Mr. Nice Guy. So uh, their, their intention, I think, uh, given, uh, given their preferences, they would want to roll back the Constitution, they would want to increase the powers of the executive, and in, 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 indeed that's the way that they, they've been behaving, uh, you know, in terms of securitization of, of public life, uh, the president, you know, walking around. I mean, appearing in public in military fatigues. Uh, you know, the huge amount of expenditure, increased expenditure on 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 uh, on military uh, equipment and materials, with the aim not of securing the borders of the country, but of controlling dissent in perceived uh, areas of opposition. Um, has Kenya? Uh, you know, whatever happens has kind of reached a sort of point where, uh, you know, uh, nothing would be settled, whoever, whoever wins. Um, I think there's a sense in which the, the, the behavior of the executive has been so uh, unacceptable and the failures in the elections have been so egregious and so obvious that there's a sense in which Jubilee cannot legitimately win an election even if that were theoretically possible. They wouldn't need to do all these things if they were capable of winning it. So there's a sense in which, in the public eye, that is no longer uh, an option. So uh, what that would mean, you know, uh, I suppose we'd have to think about. But uh, I think that that, that, that train has left, left the station. We're in a constitutional crisis right now, whether we want to admit it or not. And the means uh, to solve that constitutional crisis would need to be solved by a national conversation not by a government of national unity I think we would reject that we've been through that and uh, and that really uh, didn't work at all particularly particularly given jubilees uh, sort of hubris and intransigence and unwillingness to to negotiate to consult etc so um, I don't know I think as a country we really do have to sit down and talk before we get to um, you know, I think it would be interesting to look at the results of a poll which was done around uh, early this month, and uh, in terms of satisfaction with the Supreme Court's ruling, 77% of Kenyans were satisfied with the Supreme Court's ruling. So despite the attacks on the judiciary, 77% of the population do uh, do support the Supreme Court. And there were, of course, uh, regional outliers, but even though Jubilee is essentially a coalition between Uh, the Kalenjin ethnic group and the Kikuyu ethnic group. Uh, Rift Valley, where they're regionally located, you know, where their center is, Uh, Rift Valley uh, approved the Supreme Court ruling by 73% uh, and it was only central, where the president comes from, which was a, a, a sort of outlier, where only 57.4% of the of the um, population in cent- uh, of the uh, people approved the Supreme Court ruling. So there's a sense in which the alliance between uh, the deputy president and the president is probably more tenuous than it appears than it appears to be. So. Um, you know, th- there could be interesting reconfigurations, uh, etc. And I should add that, even despite the attempts of the government to demonize civil society and to delegitimize us, uh, we have a sort of almost Soviet Unionesque level of support of 84.5% <laughs> for sure. civil society, uh, which you know, broadly would include also uh, churches who also have like 84%. And the IEBC, 39.8%, no confidence in the IEBC. So there is support for change, and, uh, and Jubilee is being as intransigent and as, uh, as extreme as it is because of a sense of desperation, I think. So there may be also some opportunity in, in the midst of this, uh, of this crisis.
1: Yes. Um. Thank you very
4: much. Uh, in closing, yeah, I don't think it takes a, a rocket scientist to know what needs to happen to shift the situation in Kenya, especially you know resolving the particular crisis at this moment. Prescriptions have been offered through the Supreme Court, and there are a whole range of willing actors uh, amongst Kenyans who can offer guidance on what needs to be done. It's simple. You cannot have the same institution that delivered an election that was considered problematic doing it again. It's it's. It does not take a rocket scientist to figure that out. I uh, am going to do those things now that people do in television and say that if Uhuru Kenyatta is listening, what the country country needs right now is some level of political maturity. If at any point Uhuru is thinking about his own legacy as a leader, they have styled themselves as this young uh, progressive, whatever progressive means in in, in their words, uh, uh, leaders in the continent. Then this is the moment for him to, to think about how his legacy will be remembered, and if this is really about recognizing that he wants to win clearly and solidly, which is what the opposition wants. They want to lose fairly, or win fairly. Then let him think about his political legacy. I think the the ways the the ways in which uh, the president has behaved in the uh, since the you know the Supreme Court ruling has been appalling, uh, and uh, takes away any goodwill. That anyone would have had when they voted for him the first time, and these are some of the things that he needs to keep in mind as he thinks about the forthcoming election. Exercising maturity is not that complicated, and that is what Kenyans need from him right now to exercise political maturity.
1: Yes, thank you very much. You can be very sure we get him to listen to that. <laughs> um, Comfort, please.
6: Um, you, you asked an an interesting question in that, despite everything. Yeah. Kenya may still end up in the victor, and that's a that's a plausible scenario, and, and it's one one that has to be taken seriously. Uh, it's what happens the day after should he win that I that I've well, always seen some of it already. Um, I mean, immediately um, in, in Gladwell can correct me, but immediately after the the um, the the court decision, uh, I think the, the board for the NGOs itself, um, apparently under, well, I don't want to speculate, but anyway, the, the, the NGO board itself sort of tightened its own grip around um, the, the, the movement of, of civil society activities as well. So you're already you you're seeing what, you know, already the, the path is already clear in terms of what's going to happen. There have been threats about cutting the, the budget of the Supreme Court um, after um should he come into should he come to power so and you and you've seen the language that has been used against the the court so you know you we to answer your question abuja we 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 you can you, we can already see what what the future looks like yeah. if that happens um whether he wins or not i mean i i think the troubles will will be there because should he lose <laughs> um and i so so that's so i mean it's I, I'm not, I, I don't have a good answer, um, but I don't know that Gladwell and Awina, you've also answered the question because you're both suggesting quite rightly that the trust deficit, It it's so low to question whether the first cutoff date, the no, first of November is even possible. And so what happens after then? Do you Do you extend the life of the President and work these things out, or or what do you, or or do we operate in in a in a vacuum? It's that's the bit that that's the conundrum. But I don't understand. I'm not quite sure what what either of you are concluding on on that point because that is the big issue as well. Um, if you're suggesting that that the the election was so yes was so egregious, you don't see how um, you know this same body can perform the elections then. What happens comes the 1st of November in terms of governance of the country?
1: Well, that's not a very interesting note to end. <laughs> uh, but don't forget that at the beginning I said that we are particularly fortunate to be listening to three of the finest minds uh, on the topic. And um, I'm sure you'll, you'll all agree with me that that utterance has been quite vindicated. Once again, comfort. Thank you very much. And we know we're very grateful. Gladwell. Thank you very much. Um, once again, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. And I'm sure we've started something that we cannot complete. So once again, thank you very much. And I think it's a pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to the discussion program on the ALC Pan African Radio. For this and other programs, please visit our website at alcafricanradio.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Radio ALC and on Facebook at ALC Radio numeral number one. For feedback on this and other programs, please send an email to info at africanradio.com.